Hello. Before we get going with the show, we'd like to draw listeners' attention to our Patreon page at Always Take Notes. For as little as $2 a month, your contribution means that we can pay our social media editor and our producer properly and keep the podcast going. If you contribute to the crowdfunding campaign, you'll receive a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself, from Rachel, uh, and from Ellie, our previous co-host, to all sorts of fantastic publications. And we'd also like to give a shout out to one of our most recent contributors, who is Olivia Gavayanis, who signed up earlier this month. Olivia, we really appreciate your support and wishing you all the best with your writing. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to the novelist Louise Doughty. We spoke to Louise about her experience of a creative writing MA, about why she thinks the term chiclet is unfair, and about her exhaustive research process. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Louise, to Always Take Notes. I was hoping we could kick off with um, your first novel that you wrote aged 11. Could you, could you tell the listeners about um, why you started writing at such a young age and what, and what the book was about? Well, really because I was such a sad child, I think. Um, I mean, I grew up on the edge of uh, a small town in the East Midlands and the, the housing estate, which was very brand new with big gardens, um, it was right on the edge of town and beyond that there was waste ground. And I used to spend a lot of time on that waste ground. I would actually lie to my mum. I would say that I was going to play with the other kids on the estate. And I would put a book, normally one of the Narnia books or an Ursula Le Guin book, in the pocket of my anorak. And I would go and build a den and I would read. And I I think I was quite a sort of strange and, and lonely child, really, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. But reading and making up stories just formed a huge part of my childhood and yes I I did decide uh, when I was 11 that I was going to write my first novel. Um, It was very influenced by my father used to watch a lot of those old black and white John Wayne movies the really early ones on Saturday afternoons and it was also influenced by Watership Down which um, older listeners of yours will remember. It was the big children's hit of its day. In fact, a lot of adults read it too, uh, The Talking Rabbits. Anthropomorphizing animals was very big. And so I wrote this novel, which was about uh, horses uh, laughing, living and loving on the plains of the Midwest, which seeing as I was terrified of animals and had never left the East Midlands was a slightly odd choice. Um, They talked I believe they also wore hats. Um, And I I took myself very seriously. It it won't surprise you to learn. I decided I wanted it to be a hardback. So I made cardboard covers for my book. I still actually have it somewhere um, tucked away. Um, I should dig it out, really, and give everybody a good laugh. Thank you so much for for telling us that. Could we jump forward (laughs) a little bit to your experience? Yes, please. (laughs) uh, Your experience of doing a creative writing MA. So we've had, um, you know, various people from the world of sort of creative writing teaching on the show. So we've had um, the tutors from the uh, Faber Academy and from Curtis Brown and also people who've... um, who've taught creative writing in various contexts and, and done these courses and had a, a kind of spectrum and array of, of opinions about them. What was the experience like for you? You were just when Malcolm Bradbury was, was running it, right? It was, yep. That's just how old I am. My tutors were Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter, okay. uh, both no longer with us, sadly. 
And I went in uh, 19, I think it was 1986 to 87, which is when I was there. It was the same year that Anne Enright uh, went. Um, she was a young, unpublished Irish writer at the time. I wonder what ever happened to her. Um, and Mark Illis, a uh, novelist and screenwriter, Fadia Paquet, a Jordanian writer and academic. And Malcolm Bradbury very kindly said later on that our year was a kind of stellar year. It was the year at which things suddenly started to take off and his shelf of former students who had published books began to expand at, at speed. I think what's interesting is that when, at that point, it was before, not long before, Kazuo Shiguru won the Booker Prize for Remains of the Day. And I think that was arguably the point at which that particular course and in fact creative writing as a whole in this country really took off. Um, when I went, it was still considered a very niche degree. And in fact, when I was there, half of our studies had to be straight literature studies. I did a course in postmodernism and I took an exam in it at the end of the year because the university wouldn't actually award an MA unless there was an academic component. Whereas, of course, now, you know, every university in the country has a creative writing course. And as you say, Faber Academy, um, the agency Curtis Brown, uh, The Guardian, you know, writing courses have mushroomed all over the country. But at the time that I went, there was still a sense that it was a project that had to, if you like, defend its right to exist. So I, I went to quite an interesting juncture in the history of creative writing. And how was that course set up? I mean, you mentioned the sort of academic side in the exams, but how was the actual creative writing part taught? We had weekly seminars in the first two terms with Malcolm Bradbury. And I always remember the very first meeting where we all sat rather nervously in his office. There were 10 of us in total, including Fadia was a, a PhD student and we had one part-time student and then there were eight full-timers. And Malcolm Bradbury said, OK, I'm just going to tell you the way this is going to work. We'll be discussing two writers each week. And I just assumed he meant, you know, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, you know, Jane Austen. And then he said, you'll need to hand in your work for photocopying the week before so we all have time to read it. And I realised he meant us. He meant me. And it was the first time that anyone had ever referred to me as a writer. And that was an enormously important moment because I realised, gosh, yeah, that actually is what I'm here for, for these nine months in Norwich. I'm here to be a writer. I'm here to be taken seriously. And most importantly of all, I'm here to take myself seriously. And I think I was still, I was very young. I was quite immature. And I think to be told that by somebody at the very beginning of your writing career and your writing ambition was enormously important. Could we talk about Crazy Paving, so your first novel, um, both about how, how it came about, you know, in terms of getting a publishing deal and things like that, and then in terms of how it was perceived. I was interested reading some of the interviews with you, um, that this sense that it was kind of marketed at that time in the mid-90s as a sort of chiclet piece, which you felt was distinct to the themes and the, and the ground it covered. Well, interestingly, it wasn't marketed that way when it was first published, because it was first published pre-Bridget Jones. Okay. So when it was first published, it was just viewed as literary fiction. Um, it was reviewed by people like Jonathan Coe and Jason Cowley. And 
pre-Bridget Jones, I think there was not the same sense that any young woman writer who wrote about other young women or who wrote about relationships must somehow be writing in what we can loosely call the chiclet genre. Um, but what happened later on after the whole Bridget Jones explosion is that my books were retrospectively recast that way because I was a young woman writing about other young women and therefore that's what I must be. And the paperbacks were reissued. I mean, Dance With Me, which was a book about sexual betrayal and mental illness, was reissued with a girl in a summer dress, you know, with her head cut off running through an orchard. You know, Jeez. that's the way <laughs> the books were published because that was what was selling. Um, I mean, Honeydew, which was also printed very much the same way, that's about a girl who murders her parents. And when my fourth novel, Fires in the Dark, came out, a review in The Guardian said, oh, you know, Louise Doughty, previously the author of Cheery Chicklet, has now published this very serious book set during the Second World War. And I thought, have you actually read my first three novels? There's a girl who murders her parents. There's mental illness in Dance With Me. And Crazy Paving is about chaos theory and IRA terrorism. It's, it was a book that was set during uh, a 1990 IRA bombing campaign. And but yet all people had seen were these covers with, you know, women in summer dresses running through orchards. And that was it. And I think it, it was simple and outright sexism. Um, and uh, it, it it was irksome at the time, I have to say, and it still is. And it does make me laugh when you think that. Um, I mean, for instance, Dance With Me, which has ghosts and mental illness, if that was published now, it would be called Domestic Noir um, and would have a black cover uh, and coloured lettering on. I think you have to accept as a novelist, however irked you are, that the way in which you are marketed is to do with what is selling at the time at which you're published, what are the mores of the time. And, you know, your publisher is a commercial organisation. I don't blame them for it. They have to sell your book to people who are buying books already of a certain type. But that process should always be seen as completely distinct from the quality of your prose. And I think if, if you get too irked by this, you will spend your whole life worrying about how you're marketed and not enough worrying about the really important issue which is, you know, what are the words on the page? So have you resisted the temptation to exert more control over, over the covers of your books? I'm not sure I could if I tried, you know. I think if a publisher says to you, look, if you let us do this, we'll sell X copies, you know, they are the experts. Uh, their job is to market books. Is any author really going to say, no, I don't want you to sell that many copies. I think it's a foolish author who does that because ultimately what you want is you want your words to reach a reading public. Um, that said, the one line in the sand I have drawn is stilettos. Um, I have spent my entire career <laughs> fighting to keep stilettos off the cover of my books because that particular sort of soft porn imagery uh, I just find is so gender specific um, and so insulting in a way. Uh, I have to say that every now and then um, I see a foreign edition 
of a book where I haven't been sent the book in question and I drop my head into the sieve of my hands, as Karen Duffy would say, uh, in despair. But, you know, you can't be a control freak if you want to enter the world of traditional publishing. You know, if you if you want to be a control freak about the way you are published, then self-publish or don't publish at all. Um, you know, your job as a writer, as I say, is to think about the words on the page and your publisher's job is to get you into the hands of the reading public. And sometimes that is by routes that don't necessarily represent the full complexity of what you write. But, you know, that's just the deal. Did it? I mean, in, in blunt commercial terms, did it work? I mean, what with those early novels, what kind of sales were you Well. Doing? Not at all. Um, all it did with the early novels was, I think, make people think I was one thing that I wasn't sure. and irritate people who might have bought the books on those bases. I mean, it was particularly ridiculous, that one, because there was nothing for Chiclet fans in my novels, it has to be said. Um, I think where it has worked is more recently the way in which my current publisher, Faber and Faber, who didn't do the first five books, have marketed my more recent books within what we might call the psychological thriller or domestic noir genre. That has worked. In fact, it's been a triumph because it has got my stories into hands of lots of people who might not have otherwise read them. But I think that's for the simple reason that A, um, psychological thrillers are not really seen as gender specific um, in the way that Chicklet was. And I think also that it's such a broad category. Um, you know, so many books of so many different sorts can fall into the psycho psychological thriller broad church that I think um, it doesn't feel as though a novel is hamstrung in certain ways if it's marketed like that. Um, un unlike a gender-specific genre where there's no doubt that people will dismiss you on that basis and will dismiss your seriousness on that basis, which I think uh, annoys a huge number of women writers, quite apart from me. To go back slightly, um, because it took you eight years to get your first novel published, what did those eight years look like? Um, and how soon did you kind of manage to get an agent and get the ball rolling in that respect? Oh God, they were miserable. Um, I moved to uh, London after I did the course and I had no money at all. I, I remember very clearly that I had £12 in my pocket when I moved to London um, in 1987. And I was house-sitting for a friend of a friend for a bit until I found uh, a room uh, in Camberwell with tentacles of damp coming down the wall and I, I didn't have a bed. I had a mattress on the floor and I had an upturned orange box for um, a bedside table. And I lived like that for three and a half years. And I just did the classic writer in the garret thing. I did any number of jobs to support myself in London while I tried to write. Um, I did a lot of part-time secretarial work, which is where the material for Crazy Paving came from. Um, I did um, some part-time teaching. I, I just did almost anything you could think of, really. And, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was a miserable, miserable time. Um, because, you know, as everybody knows, there's no guarantees. And I was full of this kind of immature passion and ambition 
I really, really wanted to be a writer, but I had no resources behind me. And I, I knew I had a lot of work to do. I knew that I had thousands and thousands of words to write before I could write anything that was good enough to be published. And even having done that MA in creative writing, you know, that, that doesn't guarantee anything. Um, people seem to think that if you do one of those courses, I mean, particularly now, the courses are so famous that it, it's a passport to being published. And it really, it really isn't the case. You've still got to write a novel uh, that's worth publishing. And I, I didn't and I couldn't for years and years. What was the, um, the break then? How how did Crazy Paving, how did you get agented? How did you get a deal? Yeah, so the breakthrough for me was actually with two competitions that both happened around the same time. I think it was sort of 1990, 1991. Um, sadly, neither of these competition, competitions exist, although lots of others do. There was one which was called the Instant James Awards, which was a short story competition. And there was another called Radio, the Radio Times Drama Awards, which was for unproduced radio plays. And both of these competitions were completely you know, open entry. Anyone in the country could enter, and they did. So they had thousands and thousands of entries. And with each of them, I, I got third place. I didn't win either, but I got runner-up, um, one of the runners-up. And I got my first agent through uh, being placed third in that short story competition. Um, he was one of the organisers of the prize who was just setting up his own literary agency and said he wanted to represent me. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a great stroke of, of good luck. It, it only happened because of the prize. Uh, I should say that even after that, I, I wrote another, I'd already written one novel in my early 20s that was no good and I didn't even send it anywhere. I wrote a second novel in my mid-20s, um, which was better, but still not good enough to be published. And that agent sent it out to three or four publishers who all said no. Uh, but a couple of them said, we'd be interested in seeing what she does next. And then fast forward by several years, and I was still slogging away and working as a part-time secretary. And I was working on what was technically my third possibly to be unpublished novel. And the agent rang up and said, look, you know, we haven't been in touch for ages. What are you working on? And I said, well, I've got this book. I've only written 100 pages, though. So he said, well, let's meet up. Um, you know, let's let's have lunch and you can show me the pages. So uh, we had a very nice lunch and I gave him the 100 pages um, and then got the bus back to the bedsit I was living in off the Brixton Road in South London. And bearing in mind, this is way before mobile phones, internet, anything like that. As I got in the door, the telephone was ringing. And it was the agent who was waiting for his train at Charing Cross. And while he waited for his train, he had sat down and read the pages I had given him. And he said, um, he said, this is the book that's going to be your first published novel. And I'm going to photocopy it tomorrow and send it out for publication and I was kind of what you must be kidding <laughs> that's, that's all I've got I don't even know where it's going and he said no trust me this is these pages are going to get you your first book deal and he was right uh, he sent it out to four publishers 
and uh, two of them said no and two of them offered and there was a little mini auction nothing spectacular but it doubled the first offer and I'd always said that I'd wanted to be a full-time writer by the time I was 30 earning living as a writer and I was 29 and a week away from my 30th birthday when I got my first book deal which was a two book deal for the books that became Crazy Paving and then Dance With Me uh, with Simon & Schuster, my then publisher. Um, so that was a very exciting time, I have to say. A week after that, there is a PS to this, which is a week after that, I was offered uh, my first proper job in journalism. I've been doing bits of freelance book reviews, the occasional feature here and there. And um, I was offered extraordinarily out of the blue, completely unexpected, the job of theatre critic of the Mail on Sunday. And that was a Friday and it was the day before my 30th birthday. The next day was a Saturday of my 30th birthday. So I, I did it with 24 hours to spare. Um, and it was quite a good party, shall we say. Could we talk a bit about your writing process? I was interested to read an interview with you where you describe your big bang theory of writing. Could you elucidate for, for listeners what that theory is? Yeah, um, I think about novels for ages and ages, often years, before I write anything down. Um, and I find that for me, and I think a lot of writers, it's very common to be fantasizing about the next novel while I'm working on one. Um, and it's a bit, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in a marriage that's proving a bit tricky, you know, how alluring and attractive other people seem. Um, you're slogging away at a book, you know, it's really hard work, it's causing you all sorts of difficulties, you don't know if it's going anywhere. And then there's this kind of romantic ideal of the next novel idea. And of course, that will be pure and lovely and beautiful and never cause you any problems at all. So by the time it gets round to that new idea, I've had all these thoughts swirling around in my head for a very long time. Sometimes if there's been a break between books, I might have started to make notes um, I might have started to do a bit of preliminary research, a bit of reading, maybe visiting a few places that I think might feature in the book. I've already been to Norway, Iceland and Coventry for the book I'm working on at the moment. Um, I might have taken some photographs in those places. I might have made a few research notes. And what it is, the reason I describe it as a big bang is because it's like this dust ball is gathering. I don't really know what the book is yet. I just know that there's this body of material that's building up and it's like this dust ball and it starts to swirl. And then, as I understand it, um, obviously my knowledge of the science is a bit rudimentary here. I'm using it mainly as metaphor. But you know, the Big Bang happened and the dust ball coalesced into this kind of hard kernel that became the universe. And something happens, something I see or something I do, and there's a Big Bang and I think, right, okay, I've got it. That's what my novel is really about. And that's always a lovely, lovely moment because that's the moment at which I realise there really is a book there. And following on from that question, the question we always ask to novelists uh, on the show is whether uh, the terms we're given are whether you're a plotter or a plunger. I mean, I know there are different <laughs> ways of describing this, but whether you are 
someone who works out, be it in post-it notes on the walls or, or in a spreadsheet or something, the shape of the whole narrative before you get going, or whether you just dive in and follow your notes. We've had you know, people who very, very accomplished who take completely opposite approaches here. With, with yourself, once that big bang moment has happened, how do you plot or do you plunge? Definitely plunge. No doubt about it. Okay. In fact, I think it's, it's a really good way of putting it. Um, if I tried to plot in isolation before I had a lot of material to work with, I would just sit and stare at a blank screen or blank bit of paper in confusion. My mind would go blank as well. Um, I need to generate a huge amount of material, a lot of scenes, so that I can then sit back on my heels and look at them and work out what is the through line through all this material. So all of that big bang stuff I've been talking about, all the, the swirling motes of dust, after a while, those will appear in some sort of written form, you know, either as fully fleshed out scenes or just notes on a paper napkin. You know, I have done that at times. And I will keep doing that. I'll keep building up all that material. Quite often I will write as much as perhaps half, sometimes even two thirds of the number of words that are in the book before I do any plotting or planning at all. And then there will come a point where it's all becoming unwieldy. And I'm thinking, oh, I've got all this material. I've generated all this stuff. I know what the novel is about. I've had the big bang. But what is the through line? In what way is all this material organised? And that is the point at which I will physically spread it out, you know, on the kitchen table if there's no one else in the house or on the floor. I've Sometimes I've gone away to hotels if I need the peace and quiet and spread it all out across uh, a hotel room floor and sat back on my heels and thought, OK, in what order does everything happen? And then I physically move the scenes around. I pick up a scene and I think, right, that's really got to happen in the first quarter. And I'll put it there. I'll pick up another scene and think, OK, that can't happen until X has happened. And I'll put it in the right place. And I'll end up with a kind of physical representation of the through line of the narrative. When I've done that, I tend to then put it into piles, usually three or four piles, saying, you know, these things will happen roughly in the first third, second third, final third, or into quarters. And sometimes I'll even call them A, B, C and D or A, B, C. And only at that point will I go back to the beginning and work my way through the chronology of the book. And I, the way I think of it is, I think of it much more like sculpting, that a sculptor might need a block of wood or whatever other material she's working with in order to put form on it. And I need a lot of material, I need lots of scenes, I need lots of words written down before I look at it and I think, right, now is the time to kind of knead it into shape. Now is the time to put some order on all this. What it means is I end up with a first version, I wouldn't dignify it with the term of first draft, where the whole scope of the novel is there, but it's full of holes. There are scenes, it's like a sort of dirty dishcloth with holes in it to be able to double a cobweb there are I have to then go back to the beginning and fill in the gaps work my way through it chronologically and of course you know you find out you've made mistakes you've written scenes that you can't really use because they no longer fit in 
um, or this uh, a big hole in the middle of the book that drastically needs filling or there's a scene you wrote and you just realize it's very thin you need to go away and do more research so it's a question then of working my way through the book again and again and again filling in the gaps you seem to do quite intensive research before you as you kind of mentioned the swirl of ideas um i enjoyed recently reading about a um friday night spent in a burger king in peterborough station for um <laughs> platform seven um yeah. is that unusual do you think for for a novelist to spend that much time kind of immersed in in the place um, and what are the virtues that you found of, of doing that i think i probably am a bit unusual in that um i i know very few novelists all novelists do it to a certain extent. I know very few who do quite as much as I do. Um, and yes, the Friday night in Burger King in downtown Peterborough, that was not one of my most glamorous moments as a novelist. But you know what? The the novel is set in Peterborough. In fact, most of it's set on Peterborough Railway Station. And I spent the night there as well uh, because there's lots of scenes set at night. I went out with the British Transport Police, shining a flashlight around the freight depot behind the station. And yes, I sat in Burger King. And what I find is that to me, it's incredibly useful to, if you like, visit the geography of any novel, because it's not just about the practical research details. It's not just about, for instance, you know, finding out the hours that Peterborough Railway Station is closed to the public. You can find that out online. You can find it out with a phone call. But when you actually spend the night on Peterborough Railway Station, what you notice is the particular quality of sound that a freight train makes when it comes through the station, this kind of huge sort of metallic screeching and the slowness of the freight trains and the way that they, the front of them has disappeared for miles while the back is still going through the station, the way they seem vast and ghostly and strange and threatening like these great metal monsters that's the kind of thing you will only find out if you actually go and spend a night there so although i might use the excuse of going just to find out a simple fact the the smite the sights the smells the sounds all of those things spark ideas uh for the plot as well it's when you find out that kind of authentic detail that your brain goes off on a particular tangent, plot, character development, all those things come out of practical research as well. And I just find it invaluable. Um, in fact, it, it's something I'm realising uh, with the whole uh, lockdown crisis is just how much my imagination is fed by concrete reality. Um, and it's actually rather a, a sobering thought. And at what stage in your process do you do these research trips? Because we had Ian Rankin on the show and he talked very interestingly about how he changed this. So when he, early in his career, he spent you know weeks finding out, I think it was about a particular blood test or something like that. And mm. he then, then before he'd started the first draft, and then that just ended up on the cutting room floor. And he was like, this was wasted research. And so he said that his method now is, is to have a draft and that, which he'll just he'll just push through and then go and do the research subsequently to fill out what's in it. I mean, when with these extraordinary things you do, like embedding in a, in a court case or stuff like that, like at what stage of the of the journey of the production of the book are you doing that? It's definitely during rather than before. I mean, I completely agree with Ian Rankin. I think you can waste so much time researching if you're not careful. 
And in fact, I did um, with my fourth novel, Fires in the Dark, the one set during the Second World War. You know, I think I spent about two years researching the history of Central Europe. And of course, uh, 90% of that never made it anywhere near the book. But what I tend to do is I might do a little bit, a bit left foot, right foot, a little bit of research, some writing, a bit more research, some writing. Um, when I sat through a, a courtroom case, a murder, in fact, at the Old Bailey, I had already got about a third of the material for Apple Tree Yard, but I knew that I needed to know more about the mechanics of a murder trial. And quite often what happens is I like to think of it, you need at least two visits to anywhere. You need one visit to pose the question and the other to find the answer. So maybe your first visit to wherever it is, Peterborough or Indonesia or anywhere else you have to go, you still don't really know what you're looking for. And you go to a certain place, get some small ideas, go away, go home, write those ideas up. And then you go, ah, yes, that's what I really need to know. And then you go back again. Um, so it's very much a process. Uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend to anyone that they research themselves within an inch of a life <laughs> to before they start writing, because that way you can just slow the work down. And like Ian Rankin, if there's anything I don't know, I will never let that stop me writing a scene. I might put maybe a question mark in square brackets, you know, find out this. Um, and I'll just move on because the most important thing in a first draft is that you generate the pages, you generate the words on those pages, you actually build up that body of material. And if you're not careful, it is easy to let research stop you writing um, because it has to be said, it's an awful lot of fun. I love it. Um, you know, I love the kind of detective work of, of research and it's very seductive. So you do have to make sure that you get the balance right. Are those research trips easy to, to set up? Because I know you kind of poked about in the Old Bailey um, for Apple Tree Yard. Um, you know, is it, are people generous with their time? Are they straightforward or is it a bit of a kind of labyrinthine process? I think I, one thing I would say is um, you can't rush them, a lot of those research trips. I mean, obviously, it's easier now I'm established because I can email somebody and I can say I'm a novelist and do the reference to my website and they see I really am. Quite often you have to assure people that you're not a journalist and that you're not poking around in somebody's story uh, to write any kind of tabloid expose. I mean, that's particularly true of professionals. Um, but you do, the one thing you really have to do is give it plenty of time. I mean, to use the example of the old Bailey, um, I first made contact with the Metropolitan Police when I was writing Whatever You Love, which was the novel before Apple Tree Yard, um, which begins with a child being killed in a hit and run accident. And so I made contact with somebody in the Metropolitan Police who put me in touch with somebody who trains family liaison officers who deal with the relatives of road accident victims. It was when I met that particular person that I mentioned um, that with a future novel, I was thinking about a, a trial scenario. And then I met somebody else who runs training courses at Hendon um, for training detectives, new detectives, baby detectives in how to give evidence in court. 
in what they really do call the Crime Academy. And then I went and sat in on that. It was because of that that I met another officer who was in charge of those training programs, who happened to have been a murder squad detective in a previous existence. He put me in touch with a prosecutor he knew who worked at the office. So if you think of those connections, meeting one person who says, oh, I know, the person you need to speak to is so-and-so. So-and-so might be incredibly busy and not reply to your email for two months. And then eventually you get hold of them and then you find out they're not really the person you need, but they recommend someone else. So those kind of processes, it takes months and months and months and you have to be very patient. You also have to um, be prepared to go down some blind alleys. I've been on trains to cities all over the country to meet somebody for a one-hour cup of coffee who's turned out to be, for whatever reason, completely unhelpful for the book. And that just happens. You have to put in the hours and you have to put in the legwork. Um, I think there's, I suppose, also my other big piece of advice on finding those kind of avenues is never go through official routes. Um, never go to the press office of any large institution because uh, the job of a press office is to protect their institution from any bad publicity. So a press office will always view you with suspicion and you might say rightly so, you can't blame them. Um, always, always try and take a personal route if you've got a cousin who has a friend who's a police officer or a GP or a surgeon or a lawyer, you know, always, always try and find a relative or a friend of a friend and go in an institution through the side door, never try and get in through the front door. It's very interesting what you say about the, the kind of difference in perception between if you're doing it as a journalist or as a novelist. We had um, James Graham on, the playwright, who talked a lot about his, yeah, his similar research and how the fact that it was, it was going to be in drama meant he was perceived very differently. But I, I wanted to ask a, a slightly different question, which is that it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it relates to, <laughs> to people's writing lives. Um, so how has that worked for you? You talked about this period in your early 20s being very skint in mm. London. How, have you been able to write full time since then? Have you done other work? And how is how has the TV adaptation of your work fitted into that equation? Yeah, well, Apple Tree Yard, which was the one that was on TV and was my first bestseller, was my seventh novel. Okay. And uh, that was the first time I was able to be a full time novelist. So when I was completely unpublished, I was doing you know, secretarial teaching bar jobs. Even after I had been published, um, uh, my first novel was shortlisted for four awards. I was reviewed in all the newspapers. Um, Whatever You Love, the sixth novel was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award, long listed for the Orange. I was still not a full-time writer. Um, I, up until Apple Tree Yard, the quality of the day jobs improved. I no longer had to do bar work and secretarial work, but I did journalism, broadcasting, teaching, creative writing, what I believe is referred to as a portfolio career, but I think less generously is basically not earning enough living out of anything mm. for it to be the one thing. And it was only when Apple Tree, Tree Yard was first selected for the Richard and Judy promotion, which is a, a huge deal in sales terms, and then was adapted for television. That was the first time in my career 
Um, that was what, 2017, it went out on the television and my first novel was published in um, 1995. So it, it only took me 22 years to be an overnight success. <laughs> uh, you know, if I would say to people, um, always consider what is the relationship between your art and money because it's not necessarily a symbiotic relationship. I could sit here and list a dozen writers of my personal acquaintance who have been shortlisted for prizes, really well-known, quite high profile, and they're still not earning a living just from novels. Um, very, very few of us ever get that opportunity. For the vast majority of us, there's always got to be um, a, a backup plan. And it's why I'm sure a lot of the writers you interview, uh, a lot of the novelists you interview have professorships in creative writing institutions. You know, that I think has replaced journalism as the most common way for novelists to support themselves. Um, even when you do have a hit like Apple Tree Yard, which I'm exceptionally grateful for, it's only bought me a few years. Um, I am currently, as I speak to you, touch wood, a full-time novelist, um, and I'm also doing some screenwriting for television. But, you know, that money will run out uh, in two, three, maybe four years if I'm lucky. Um, and then I will be back to doing part-time teaching um, or also journalism and broadcasting. Um, no writer, except for a tiny, tiny percentage, can ever rely on novels alone, uh, seeing them through to old age. And that's something it's it's wise to think about right at the beginning, I think. With Apple Triad, uh, you talked about sort of being pigeonholed early in your career, but um, Ian Hislop anointed you the poster girl for middle-aged <laughs> sex after after you wrote that book. Do you think that's still, still a kind of difficulty in shaking off a kind of woman writer thing? Yeah, I, that was quite funny. He did that publicly at the, the Costa Awards once. Um, uh, uh, I actually, I, it, it made me laugh, to be honest. Uh, if you're getting a novelist for that job to be the poster girl for middle-aged sex, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, really. We're, we're, we're not known for being the sexiest people. I, I spend most of my life in my dressing gown with porridge spilt down a lapel. Um, I think, yeah, I hope it's got better for a younger generation of women writers. I certainly felt that when I was first published, it wasn't quite so bad. Then it seemed to get to go backwards, to get very bad. There were several novels in a row where I was only reviewed by women, where I was endlessly asked to be on a panel about what it's like to be a, a woman writer. And I always felt like saying, I, I charge extra for being a woman. If you want me on as a novelist, that's, you know, X. If you want me to be a woman as well, you know, you've got to pay extra. Um, I remember in Canada doing a panel with Amanata Fauna, Justin Cartwright, and I think one other about writing and war. But, uh, this was after Fires in the Dark. And it suddenly occurred to me, God, I've been publishing novels for nearly two decades by then. It was the first time I'd ever been asked to be on a panel that was, if you like, a traditionally male subject. Um, I think it has got easier now I'm older. I think it's much harder when you're a young woman writer. 
when people want to endlessly um, illustrate uh, your books and interviews and reviews with a loving soft focus picture, that definitely gets a bit better when you're in your 50s. Um, although I still see the old airbrushed item out there. I think it helped with a book like Black Water, which was the novel that came after Apple Tree Yard. That was set in Indonesia and it was about political violence in Indonesia. And I was very pleased that that drew comparisons with Graham Greene. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, that is the first time in my career I've actually been compared to a, a kind of a male sort of writer of the canon. I was going to say, I noticed that people can't seem to resist comparing you to, to other female writers, whether it's Gillian Flynn or Kristen Rupenian, um, you know, on, on certain thematic things. You know, is that helpful in any way or is it is it just sort of annoying that it can't that your work can't be described on its own merits? It, it is annoying, but I think it's inevitable. Um, and um, I suppose the nice thing about having a success is, you know, that there are probably other people out there who are getting annoyed that they're being compared with Louise Doughty. <laughs> Do you think, oh, well, I suppose that's progress of a sort. Um, I mean, to be fair, when I started publishing in the 90s, you know, uh, a male writer of my generation said to me, God, Louise, at least it isn't the case that every time everything you publish, you're told you're just trying to be Martin Amis. You know, writers are always published in a way that tries to align them with a more successful writer of a similar type, because that's just one of the marketing tools that publishers use. I do think it is irritating when it comes to gender, I'm sure it's irritating for writers who are people of colour that they're constantly um, compared um, to other writers of colour. I think it's simply that we all have to use shorthand when we're representing ourselves and our publishers use a kind of shorthand when representing us to others. Um, I wish it wasn't so, but as I said earlier, I do think that if you do want to be published within um, commercial traditional publishing, you have to accept a certain amount of compromise in terms of the way you're marketed. Um, because, you know, publishers are not the Arts Council. They're not there to give you money to do whatever you want. They're there to make money for their shareholders. People who invest in Penguin Random House or HarperCollins also invest in, you know, SO or Shell. That, that's the deal. Those they are commercial institutions. And um, there comes a point where if you want a total stranger to go into a bookshop or go online and spend $7.99 on something you've written as opposed to something that Graham Greene or Virginia Woolf or Alice Walker or Toni Morrison has written, you know, you, you are doing a commercial deal there. And I suppose I occasionally get a little impatient with writers who sometimes talk as though they have a right to the life of a published writer without any of those compromises. I think if you're going to be commercially published, compromise is part of the territory. With your screenwriting work, how has that come about? Because you've said that there should be a law against authors adapting their own work, right? So, I mean, what, what involvement did you have in your own work being adapted? And then how has that uh, moved 
into other projects? I, I trust that one is going to get thrown back at me the minute I doubt one of my own novels and I would deserve it. I did say that. Um, I suppose what I really meant is that there should be a law against me adapting my own novels, not necessarily everybody. Um, Apple Tree Yard. I mean, I've had books optioned before and nothing had come of it. I mean, most writers do. Um, Apple Tree Yard, there was never any suggestion that they were going to ask me Um uh, I mean, they there was a bit of a bidding war for the rights, which was lovely, but it meant there was already money in the game. They wanted to get a top professional experienced screenwriter and quite right too. And luckily for me, uh, I was under contract to write Blackwater and I was in the middle of it um, at the point where Apple Triad was being adapted by a very wonderful writer called Amanda Coe, who also write novels herself. So there was never any question that I wanted to be allowed to interfere any more than I was. And in fact, the first time I met Amanda, I said to her very clearly at a meeting at Kudos um, TV, who had optioned the book, you know, this is your baby, away you go. You've got my email if there's anything I can help with, but, you know, over to you. And she did say later that she appreciated that because I did very much just cut away from the project at that point. I was an associate producer on it. Uh, still don't know what an associate producer is or does. Um, I just know I was one. And what that meant was I was sent the scripts at the end of the process. Um, after it had been greenlit and commissioned, it was well underway. The scripts were in a very finished state. Um, and I was sent them to read then. And really, I, I just felt in awe of how anybody takes a book and makes it into a different art form. Um, the ways in which visual representation is needed for a thought that can work on the page, but does absolutely not work in a dramatic form. Um, and I, I just thought Amanda Coe did a brilliant job of that. Uh, I mean, there were, for instance, to give you a practical example, in Apple Tree Yard, there was a baby, there was a pregnancy. Um, that wasn't in the novel at all. And I read in uh, early on in the scripts, I read that Yvonne's daughter is pregnant. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why, why they made her pregnant. And what it, that turned out to be was there needed to be a moment in the courtroom where in the book, um, Yvonne is betrayed, and I won't go into the details for anyone who hasn't read it, because of something that becomes clear that involves a point of law. Now, in a novel, you can have, particularly a first-person novel like Apple Tree Yard, you can have the character explaining that point of law uh, to the reader. Now, you, you can't do that in a courtroom drama um, on television. I mean, the only way you can do it is if two lawyers talk to each other and go through a legal nicety. And obviously, that's not good drama. It's very boring. So instead, they gave an incident to the courtroom where Yvonne's husband, who's in the public gallery, comes and gestures to her, a rocking the baby motion to say, you know, our grandchild has been born. And Yvonne sees that and her co-defendant Costly sees that. And the, a, a big betrayal that is about to happen in the drama turns on that moment. And it's a visual moment, an entirely visual moment. And that's why the daughter was given a pregnancy 
early in the series. Now, that kind of thing is just incredibly clever. I think unless you really know your oats when it comes to television drama, if I had adapted it myself, I would never have understood why that kind of thing was necessary. But you've talked a bit in terms of novel writing of the importance of throwing in a kind of unexpected plot twist. Um, how easy do you think it? I mean, it's a sort of it's the same sort of principle. Not really. I think a plot twist um, in a novel can be revealed simply by a character having a thought. Now, unless you're going to have a voiceover, which some people do use in television dramas, how are you going to do that on the screen if a plot twist revolves around a character having a thought? You know, a huge plot twist in a novel can be one character thinking to themselves, I don't love him anymore. That's not dramatic on a screen. You know, there has to be a dramatic or a visual representation of that thought. And I think to me that goes to the heart of the difference between novel writing and drama. And I think it's very difficult for a novelist to look at her own novel and make that transposition from one medium to the other. I think I could do it with someone else's novel. Um, and I think I could do it with original drama um, because then, you know, the very origins of the idea, uh, they, they are created to fit the form. But I think doing it with your own work is exceptionally hard. You've thought of it one way and you've just got to think of it a whole other way. It's like doing your own translation. Unless you're fluent in the language you're translating into, I think it's probably quite unwise. Well, listen, Louise, we're coming up against the end of our time limit, but thank you for being such a, a fascinating and candid guest and wishing you all the best with your writing going forward. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Hello, it's us again. Uh, just looking back on, on that episode, it was another one that we've done remotely in lockdown um, via via the internet. Rachel, what was your, your thoughts on talking with Louise? I really enjoyed talking to Louise, not least because Apple Tree Yard was the first book we discussed in my book club and we you know, combed it over for about three hours. So it was great to hear about the process behind that. Um, one thing I wish we'd sort of discussed more was her were her columns about writing a novel in a year which would turn into a book that everyone raved about so maybe we could have drilled more into the into the specific tips and things that she found from that but on the whole I thought it was a really insightful discussion how about you yeah very much so I enjoyed it and was just very impressed by her um her level of research and her yeah. her ability to to navigate and get get through these kind of things anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me Simon Aikham and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, at Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>